Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. Thanks for coming back again for another interview. Hope you've enjoyed those that you've already listened to and are looking forward to hearing from this week's guest. Just a word about sponsors, and I'm thrilled to announce that along with Messina Covers and the Eastman Music Company, we now have Pickett Blackburn as a sponsor. Trumpet players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, maybe even more so than other players. And if you've got an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers is where you need to go. Erica Howard and David Messina will help you design the ideal case and in some pretty crazy colors. They also offer mouthpiece pouch options and not just trumpet bags, but now you can get a case made for just about anything you can imagine. Be sure to check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company. Eastman offers a complete line of brass instruments from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And of course, with SE Shires, you now have the Q-Series and the professional models. The legendary Doc Severinsen even helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find more information about the Eastman Music Company at eastmanwinds.com. And you can learn more about the SE Shires line of instruments at seshires.com. Pickett Blackburn has certainly established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance yet to try any of the stock or even some of the custom mouthpieces available through Pickett, you can check them out online at pickettblackburn.com. And of course, the Blackburn side of Pickett Blackburn includes their incredible line of trumpets, endorsed by such great musicians as Vince DiMartino. Again, be sure to check them out at picketblackburn.com, and Picket is with two T's. Before we get to today's interview, just a reminder that you can be a financial supporter for this podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash studio HFL. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash studio HFL. There are four levels of support offered, and you can choose the one that best fits your budget. Your support will help offset the cost of production for this podcast and would be greatly appreciated. Please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studio HFL. And now on to today's interview. Alan Vizzuti, of course, everybody's going to know who you are, but welcome to my podcast, Studio HFL. Uh And, And I start with a question. What is HFL? What does that stand for? Oh, what is what, what I think? Yeah, what do you as, think as a trumpet player, which you are? <laughs> what does the HFL stand for? High, fast, loud. Yeah, bingo. <laughs> and, and, and you would be surprised at those who don't get that right away. <laughs> well, a few trumpet players have good taste. See, yeah, there you go. <laughs> they don't yeah. get that. They, they think of hope, love, and friendship. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, if I decide to cross over into some, uh, you know, outside the brass world, maybe uh, I'll adapt that, uh, adopt that acronym for that. No, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome. Uh, it looks like you're in your home in uh, Washington State. Is that right? Yep, Seattle. Mm-hmm. In Seattle. In this current situation we're in, tell us what you're doing, what you're up to, what projects you may have going. We'll go from there. Sure. I mean, probably not too surprising in general. Um, I'm practicing. Um, I'm going to put on the side here all the all the family, wife, house sort of 
activities that can take up your whole life hmm. or when you when you have things to take care of. Um, and we've been pretty thorough and strict in this area, particularly I live on Mercer Island. Um, it's not like we're not going out because we can, we have room to go to parks and things like that, but people are really careful social distancing and all the grocery stores have masks required and um, mm -hmm. things like that are going on. So we have had some cases here and it's um, very important to be cautious. Uh, mm -hmm. So we're doing that. Uh, musically, I am writing quite a bit. I have several projects I wanted to do or have coming up, which hopefully will be rescheduled. Mm -hmm. uh, things for trumpet, but also uh, orchestral music, which is kind of, if, if I were to say, if, if I was told I had one piece left in my life to write, <clears throat> I would write an orchestra piece or a piece for trumpet and orchestra. Uh, my favorite compositional genre, although, as most of you know, I'm busier dabbling in all kinds of styles of writing. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's an important part of my life. Then these projects that keep popping up, I mean, besides the interviews such as this one and um, um, some other forms of contact, like some lessons and things, um, mm -hmm. I did set up a, an association with a thing called Aeons, A-E-Y-O-N-S, it's out of Australia. It's a, it's a global lesson platform. It's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. It's aeyons.com. Mm -hmm. And um, I set up a, I've only teach, taught a handful of lessons so far. I'm, I put kind of an expensive price, but whatever, we can talk about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that, that's been fairly busy. And, and then these recording projects, like um, the, the Ryan Anthony, Anthony Jens Lindemann, Matt Kattengub one that's got a lot of uh, hope for the future, that's got a lot of. Yeah views um, those projects have been popping up and I've been doing a little bit of that with my daughter who lives in Rome and she plays drums and violin mm -hmm. and my wife on piano um, you can see and then I've been doing a lot of little uh, uh, social media deals in terms of um, playing and recording things that I think are of interest or a little unusual or beautiful or nice mm -hmm. And uh, I do have a YouTube channel, so mo most of that stuff is on there. And all of what I've done, I kind of aim at Instagram right now. Mm -hmm. It suits me better than Twitter. And I I'm on Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff, but I don't go there much. My, my favorite format right now is Instagram. And so yeah. uh, there are a lot of things I've posted there over the last couple of months. The outlook is strange. Um, I was on my way to a rehearsal with orchestra. Mm -hmm. And I got a call that it's all off. That was on March 10th or 11th, March 11th. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when it started for me to be literal. I had just played a couple nights before somewhere in the US, I forget where. Mm -hmm. And so I just booked a flight home that night and that was the, in my life and Laura's life, my wife, Laura, she, she's a social person and, and has, you know, her music's a big part of her life and she's teaching um, also online. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She has a small private studio pianist and um, we play together some. We don't actually sit around and jam that much together, which sure. would be, it could be kind of fun. <laughs> and she's a classical player, right? Right. But there's plenty of music we should go over and probably we'll do more of that. Mm -hmm. um, but what I was going to say is in our lives, because we're both on the road together or separate or home, separate or home together, this combination of things in our lives, the, the actual setting of the COVID deal at home is not that different. <laughs> in fact, yeah. I'm here. For, I'm. Uh, we've been together more in our 32-year marriage this last two months than ever. 
and congratulations, cool. 32 years, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, still trying. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you were talking about that and it made me think, my wife, who's also a violinist, uh, commented, you know, for introverts, this is kind of an ideal situation. But for extroverts, you know, people who kind of feed off that interaction with, uh, you know, being around other people, this, this is a challenge, you know, this. Uh, it is, yeah. It's really, many of us, you know who you are, are really lucky and you may have some space. You may have a house big enough. You may have um, an area of, of the country where you can go walk in parks and keep distance and have ride bikes, uh, actually get out and, and especially in the spring when everybody's, you know, been, cabin fever and all that mm -hmm. but there I have friends and um, friends kids grown kids who are in little teeny apartments in San Francisco in yeah. New York my daughter's in a tiny place in Rome Italy mm -hmm. and it's rough I mean they're getting a little bit tiny bit uh, looser in Italy but they can't go out on the street without a paper that says what they're doing and they're yeah well, the news, and, and not to, I mean, of course, you're very aware of this if your daughter's there, but, you know, for the longest time at the beginning, most of the news, the bad news we were getting was coming out of Italy. You know, yeah, she was, happened to be uh, skiing with a friend in Lombardy, which was the, which was the beginning in Italy, the week of it. <laughs> and luckily, she and her uh, partner didn't get it. So good. That's good. been months now, but yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you mentioned your writing, and if you had one piece left, um, what style would that be? I don't know, but I call it Vizzuti style because um, <laughs> one of the, th the reason is I have done many pieces that are kind of in the style of, not copying a style, but suggesting a style. I've written an impressionistic piece and a Mexican piece and a Spanish piece and a Tchaikovsky type piece and an operatic piece. Um, and I just try to flow like almost channel the energy of a composer I admire in terms of the feel and by ear. I don't study their uh, chord progressions and things. For instance, I wrote a, a piece called My Italian Heart for trumpet and orchestra. It's, I don't know, 10, 11 minutes, and it's all beautiful melodies and mm -hmm. trumpetistic, but it's, my idea was an opera singer, mm. being the opera singer with the, with the, Orchestra. I, I did it for band and orchestra, orchestra first, and then band and and piano too, uh, for for the Rochester New York Philharmonic. And um, I just had been around the music enough as an orchestra player to have it in my ear, like Puccini style. Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful, you know. And I thought, why not? You know, I like to do some neo and eclectic stuff. So mm -hmm. um, there's that side. But when I say Vizzuti style, um, it's I sit down and literally don't try to try to create any style. I just let myself be myself. Mm -hmm. That usually leads to <clears throat> some interesting rhythmic components, some harmonic uh, treatments that crop up in quite a few of my pieces that are recognizable in their, in their colors or structures or, or mm -hmm. harmonic structure. So, um, and then the tag I put on it when I have to tag it for a program or for explanation is melodic contemporary in general. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I've written some atonal pieces, but not, not 12 tone yeah a couple um i have a trumpet piece i mean a piece for trumpet and piano called shadows and demons that's by ear atonal it's not um 
stretch it on a, on a row or anything like that. Right. That mathematical music that's really, really interesting mathematical, mathematically, but doesn't sound like anything to me personally. I don't get any emotion from it. I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied it in school and things like that. And I thought, all along, I thought, this is really cool, but who'd want to listen to it more than part yeah. of the <laughs> But, you now, know, I, I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead. Oh, there's exceptions. There are people who have, of course. who have written some beautiful and contemporary, really out pieces that are fabulous. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to comment the, uh, the last etude in the Longinati book, the Longinati etude yeah. book, is yeah. that serial piece. And, you know, it is one of those exceptions, I think, uh, mm-hmm. because there is, there is something to it. It's, you're not going to walk down the street whistling it, you know, but, um, and it's a great way to introduce students uh, to that uh, music if they've not experienced it yet in, in either theory or history. Well, um, and the challenges of just playing through something like that are so different than, than uh, you know, modal and tonal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I'm familiar with your writing, of course, through your method books, which are fantastic. Uh, great fun duets, you know, very creative. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, you know, I've, I've, I own the, the Carnival of Venus. Um, <laughs> Why? <laughs> but, uh, you know, like a lot of us though, uh, it's unplayable, but you know, uh, I, well, I, I say unplayable um, yet. Maybe I just haven't put enough practice time in on that. Right. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think back to, uh, maybe some of the first writing you had done. Was that when you were in college or prior to that? Where did this interest in composing come along? Oh, composing, yes, basically in college. I, I had a notion and dabbled a little bit, really very juvenile style. I mean, no, no real pieces, just some little duets and things in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a piano in the house. Nobody in our family really plays piano, but there was one in the house. And uh, I'd had a few lessons, but they're fairly insignificant for sure. But yes, at Eastman, there were opportunities there to write. And I, and I had a great kind of mentor in the jazz and contemporary media department of the school. Mm-hmm. Rayburn Wright was the head of that and he taught uh, contemporary, uh, as in jazz in all styles, mm-hmm. uh, arranging, not necessarily composition, but he highly encouraged to write whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And in a nutshell, um, the program was fairly new because Eastman was slow to come around to the jazz side, mm-hmm. considering its long history of classical mm-hmm. fame and all that and reputation. Right. Finally, they, you know, caught up to the curve, mm-hmm. mostly because the, the jazz department was really generating a lot of interest and mm-hmm. uh, students and uh, crossover people were there. It was some of the old professor types were believing this is a long time ago, you know, mm-hmm. that, if you play jazz, you're going to ruin your classical, that type of thought. And um, <laughs> um, on any instrument, even they didn't even like their violinist to play in the studio orchestra, which we had a full studio orchestra with jazz ensemble inside of it. Wow. So am I loud enough? I'm, I know I speak. Oh, yeah, of, it's great. Okay, it's perfect. Okay. perfect. Um, so uh, this guy, Rayburn Wright, was really a great mentor in production and, and film and uh, dabblings in the beginnings of film. He had a class and, uh, and composition. And we had the opportunity as we were the, went through the freshman year, we wrote for jazz ensemble and small groups. But after that, we had the opportunity to write for any group, including, and it didn't have to be jazz music. It could be the, uh, these epic pieces that went through phases and sections and classical music or whatever. And it, we would read through them with studio orchestra 
on a Saturday and record them. So it was like a real recording session. Mm -hmm. And you learned about, man, if you do, if you copy the by hand, if you copy the parts and they're a mess, your piece is not going to work. No right. yeah. You yeah. learn all these nuts and bolts that I used yeah. throughout my life and the opportunity to write. So then I also got interested in just some writing for my own recitals. Mm -hmm. And um, mostly what I did during the Eastman years was a couple of trumpet pieces with piano and then um, the jazz and some contemporary media, jazz ensemble, studio orchestra. Mm -hmm. And then also during my college years, I was actually commissioned by the Rochester Philharmonic to write a piece for me to play with the orchestra. I was, in, I was third in the orchestra and the orchestra is housed right in the same building as the school, mm -hmm. Eastman Theater and all that, George Eastman, Eastman Kodak, that whole connection yes. right. in Rochester, New York. And um, so I could have rehearsal in the morning and then run to class right out the door mm -hmm. down the hall. And uh, some professors made concessions for me because the whole idea is get people launched. Right. You know, they were pretty good in understanding. Yeah. And through, through my six years there, I went through straight through for a master's. They, um, very few conflicts. I had one moment where I had booked a concert a year ahead, actually with this little orchestra in Montana to play the Haydn. And it fell right on a really important concert that they expected me to do. Oh. <laughs> I just took a shot because you book orchestras so far in insurance. Sure. You know? It was the next school year, so to speak. Right. And we talked it over, and, and, and this guy, Rayburn Wright, he says, well, this is really, I really wanted you on this concert. They had other good players, you know, mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, better than me in a lot of ways, great soloists and stuff um, on the jazz side, for sure. And, um, but he said, you know, this is what we're about, so you're going to do it, but don't, let's not let this happen again. <laughs> so it was all, yeah. that was it. Just to, yeah. And they, they really promoted it. So that piece that I, ended up writing later for the orchestra was it's called snow scenes. It's on a, it's on a recording there, Emerald Concerto and other gems. Mm -hmm. uh, all my compositions with the uh, Budapest radio orchestra. Mm -hmm. It's available <clears throat> Emerald Con uh, Concerto. I, that was just a, that was my first big orchestra piece for trumpet and, and orchestra that wasn't jazz influence. And, um, this is this the, the interesting thing that I think, think back of, of, on the piece. The, th the interesting factors involved were I had to I had a little budget because they paid me for a commission. It was just a few hundred bucks, but I had to spend about a third of it or so to get the piece copied because mm -hmm. my my it was all by hand, you know, and I couldn't pull it off uh, in, in a high quality. So I did that, and then on a Thursday. Um, morning we had rehearsal and Thursday, Friday, Saturday was a concert. Bang, done. And so <laughs> no messing around. At the time I didn't think, yep, yeah, it's kind of naive in a sense, but you just do it. You go mm -hmm. for it. And it all worked. I still use the piece. Um, so some, some of those experiences were uh, useful for my whole life. Mm -hmm. Most of them actually. And that included the recording sessions and the live or classical sessions we did at Eastman, but also all those, all the performances. Sometimes here, here uh, trumpet players who are in college or um, high school, listen to this. When you, if you go into a music program, the reason you're there is not to have coffee and hang out. And My apologies. There were a couple of incidents technology-wise during this interview, and you didn't miss much. This is just a little short gap between thoughts. Back to Alan. Performance major, which I struggle with a little bit because it's not a marketable degree, really. 
Um, you're there to have experience playing, learning, and, and interacting, and learning the nuts and bolts of what it's like to be a musician with other musicians in a context that can't be recreated in the practice room or anywhere else. And my point, what I was going for is, I talked to some students and they go, oh gosh, I have, I have band rehearsal three times this weekend or less, and I don't think I can do any more than that. <laughs> I know, I, I don't know what it's about. We, I played in four or five ensembles at the same time, and literally for many months during the school year, would play on somebody's recital every day. Now that might be five notes in a, in a brass, Sure. In a little ensemble piece, or it might be a heavy solo sometime. Mm -hmm. I just took things, and I took things I couldn't play. When I first, um, <laughs> when I first accepted a, a Brandenburg, this was a, actually a professional setting at, at Eastman still, though. Um, the Brandenburg number two, I couldn't make it through it in the practice room. I had three weeks. Mm -hmm. through. Three weeks? Oh, yeah. my gosh, yeah. And I had just gotten a piccolo, which turned out, I learned later, was lame. It was a Selmer like Maurice and Dre had, but not quite. It was, they made a version for a while that had a short lead pipe and a, uh, I mean a short, uh, the, the lead pipe part on the horn, the receiver was over by the second valve and the good ones had the receiver, receiver the normal place. Where, oh. I don't know why they did a run like that, but I got yeah. one. They were terrible. Mm. And um, so I got together with Vince DiMartino who was also at school then. He's mm -hmm. three years older than me, maybe something like that. Mm -hmm. We're still really close friends and he still sounds incredible. Right. And he heard me play about five notes and he goes, too loud. Hmm. And when I backed off and started to play real lightly and practice just touching the notes, even if they didn't quite come out, mm -hmm. almost subtone practice and then up the energy just enough to get notes, yeah. um, the whole world of piccolo trumpet changed. I don't remember what the mouthpiece situation was. Probably it was yeah. a little goofy too, because if you go too small, then it just sounds like a kazoo. Right. Actually, now I play a mouthpiece on piccolo that's slightly deeper than on B flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned Vinny, and uh, I talked to Vinny a couple of days ago. He was my first teacher, and, oh, uh, at UK, you know, years, yeah. years and years ago. Uh, but uh, I remember him telling me. Uh, he said, "You know, uh, I remember, and I don't know if this was just high school or also Eastman, but he said, you know, I would get to class early and I'd stand in the hallway and practice scales." Yeah. You know, I mean, but that's the kind of dedication. It's not that I've got band three times a week and, you know, a lesson. Yeah. I don't have, you know, I mean, he, those who are serious are going to find the time. They're going to make the time to get the job done, right? And, and of course, mm -hmm. Vinny, uh, you know, he kind of made something of himself, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He still lists teaching as his primary love. It's, you know, and... <laughs> And of course, I admire his playing like everybody, but I think you're right. Uh, as a teacher, as an educator, motivator, uh, he is, uh, I aspire to be like that. He is yeah. so, so invested in other people and making everybody better. It just, he's the yeah, best. He's, he's so generous about so many other things that people don't know about, including me. I mean, behind the scenes, you know, where he yeah. helps take care of people. Um, but yeah, when I first heard him, when I got to Eastman, he was playing in a, in a rock band kind of thing to entertain the new freshmen. Yeah. It, was, it was pretty eye-opening because I heard things that I'd never, <laughs> I'd never heard live before. Yeah. I mean, I'm from Missoula, Montana, so it wasn't like there were nightclubs with, with great bands. And, <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, speaking of Eastman and, and classmates, uh, you had, you were there 
along with some other really great players. Well, the yeah, trumpet player Jeff Tyzik. He's not playing anymore. He's a writer and a conductor. Mm-hmm. You know, all that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Fabulously successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vince, and then on trombone, Jim Pugh and Bill Reichenbach, and um, uh, Joe Mazzella was a great trumpet player. He was on the road with Maynard Ferguson. He was on the Army Studio Band and then Maynard Ferguson's band, mm-hmm. and worked in New York a long time. Um, I've lost track of him a bit. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Was Phil Collins there when you were there? He had he had left when I got mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he won the position. Is it Cincinnati? Right. Yeah. Yeah, he was there, mm-hmm. just starting there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there, there were good players, and there were players who don't necessarily have a very big name now, but were really strong. Um, a lot of them are still in music, although you know the greater percentage of music school students don't end up making a living in music. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, they keep it in their lives, and that's that's kind of my go-to thought when I give clinics, master classes, and present online and all that is, is just remember, keep music in your life because it not only helps you, it helps everyone. Right. <laughs> well, and good. that's obvious, right, in the times we're in right now is you look yeah. at Facebook and YouTube and yeah. it's just in Instagram, right, with you you putting yeah. your stuff. Um, I, I want to go back. Uh, I wasn't, uh, I, I didn't want to leave the composition thing alone. Uh, I was curious about mm-hmm. the orchestration. Right. I mean, you you said you were writing pieces for to be done. So you're learning composition arranging. But where did the orchestration uh, come in? Were you also getting uh, where were you getting those ideas or did you already have a clear idea of how you were going to voice voice things? No, I didn't have a clear idea. That was all part of the beginnings were part of the education because they all believed, as I as do I and learned that orchestration is at least half the composition. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, brass quintet. Yes, it's very important, and you can do clever things. So it's a little less of the composition, if you know what I mean. Relative. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wrote some pieces for many pieces, actually, and arrangements for ten trumpets and rhythm section for this group. I, Laura and I used to tour with, and it's amazing. At first, I thought, oh, geez, ten trumpets. This is going to like be murder. <laughs> um, for people listening, to <laughs> right. with a little use of flugelhorns and. Or, one piccolo and uh, mutes and subtlety and voicings and mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. You could do a lot. I even wrote an arrangement of Rhapsody in Blue for solo piano and 10 trumpets and bass and drums. And it, when you listen to the recording, it's very colorful, which is not, it's just, I, I would try to be, do the best I could. So sure. back on your question really is orchestration is so important and it's really fun slash tedious. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn by listening to others and you learn by experimentation and you learn by basic fundamentals of uh, things that work. In other words, colors that go together, even contrasting colors that mix well, things that become standard. That those, the people with great craft in orchestration, like orchestrators for movies and films, mm-hmm. they take somebody else's usually pretty involved sketch. Mm-hmm. If they're not ghostwriting and they're really just orchestrating, like John Williams orchestrators, yeah, he gives them a several line sketch that's very detailed mm-hmm. as far as um, kind of colors he wants or maybe even instruments and they put it on a score. And they'll make some decisions along the way. Believe me, there are always decisions. Right. Some of which they'll contact him about, I'm sure, and some mm-hmm. not because they know his style so well or whatever. Uh, those people have a craft that's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily have the art component. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Because there's some of the unknown orchestras are really great writers too. Right. Composers. Yeah. Uh, so I have become very 
I've never let anybody or wanted anybody to orchestrate one of my things. It's too much of the composition. There are too many decisions. Mm -hmm. you know. Are you writing place. this? I'm sorry. Oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. No. no, that's all right. Oh, I'm just curious. Are you at the piano when you're when you're working all this out? Um, well, not orchestrating. That's just dra uh, Well, these days I'm I'm dragging and dropping from a sketch. Mm -hmm. You might tweak something, or you know how you can do that on finale now. In terms of, uh, I don't want the French horn to play all the way through this line. I'll make an ending or something. But right. basically, I, I do a rather involved sketch, which would be a little chaotic for someone who doesn't, who who is trying to do it. It's not organized for an orchestrator. But I know what it is. Mm -hmm. I've got lines out of order, and I keep adding a line when I just need to add a quarter or a color or something here or there, mm -hmm. without um, trying to cut things in. You can just have like a a sort of patchwork of things that you see in front of you, several staves of sketch from three to five or six, mm -hmm. and then I put the real uh, beautiful, correctly organized score right above, mm -hmm. so you can drag and drop, and um, and finale actually transposes. I have to keep on my toes to keep. I, I try to double check things because I lose some of my transpositional skills, you know, it's <laughs> when Ollie does so yeah. much, but it'll, it'll goof you up too. It'll lose accidentals and things. And then yeah. it'll play back the music correctly when it's wrong on the page. Yeah. I've yeah. had that crop up in a couple of cons, uh, rehearsals, which is, yeah. but anyway, uh, yeah, the orchestration is hugely important. So I, I listen to the greats and I make mental notes or little notes about, Here's a very specific example. I went to a piano concerto and it was uh, Shostakovich. Yeah, not Prokofiev, it was Shostakovich. And I noticed he had these, these chords that were really cool and the, and the strings were accented, bang. But he wanted more punch. And I thought, what would you do there? And he had the marimba player just whack the chord right in the beginning of it. Oh. I mean, a xylophone, xylophone. Yeah. Bam. And man, it was just a beautiful mixture and really got your attention. It's something strings can't do. Yeah. They can't go to that level of attack. Yeah. So a specific example. Yeah. No, that's, that's, yeah. you know, you think about, uh, okay, pre-Finale, pre-Sibelius, yeah. yeah. you know, and you're having to, to freehand all of this. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, thank goodness that uh, this this has come along, and and I know there's some other programs at Ableton or something like that. Uh, uh, there must be something popping up. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, you know, I just think uh, everything's become easier, but not really because you still have to conceive of the sounds. You know, just because the computer makes it easier doesn't mean that everything's going to flow right from your mind in the right way the first time. You know, I, I know it still takes no. time to process. The computer will fool you. The, the computer will fool you because a, a very soft, subtle sound on stage will take up a lot of room in your headset. Mm -hmm. Harp, harp. You know, using harp carefully so that it's heard and the understanding that it can be heard, but compared to what it's like in your headphones, you know, you balance it. I need more harp. You can really yeah. get messed up. <laughs> yeah. When you hear rehearsal, you, you, yeah. you may have a real kind of the bottom might fall out of what you think was so full sounding. Well, here we are at the middle of today's episode. Just a quick reminder about our sponsors. With Messina Covers, able to cover literally all of your custom case needs, the Eastman Music Company providing excellence from the professional model all the way down to the beginner model. And of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. Now back to today's interview. 
So let's talk about those pieces then, you know, with, uh, was it Budapest that you wrote? Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. so these are your compositions. Yeah. Uh, is this the first time you're hearing these uh, played live? Uh, a couple of them. There were, or was it one? Well, there was, we did a historical, partially to have enough music to do a whole 60 minutes worth. Mm -hmm. we, we reached back into my past and, and did several, and I wrote at least one new piece for that recording because this was in the 90s it still holds up really well though mm -hmm. and the emerald concerto i wrote for the syracuse symphony a couple of years before um for me to play they commissioned it and um it's 19 19 minutes maybe mm -hmm. and that's other than the brand new one for the recording that's the newest one mm -hmm. and then there's uh there's one i wrote for doc severinson there's that original one from eastman Mm -hmm. um, what else did I do? There's an impressionistic one. I, I went in impressionistic, impressionistic direction. That's not technical. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called uh, Esperance. And I since learned, since I don't speak French, that it should, should be La Esperance. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Which means hope. Means hope. Yeah. And um, that was really, I re speaking of orchestration, I really made an effort to make it sound impressionistic. Mm hmm and I found out that it's not that easy, but also got pretty close, I think. Yeah. It ain't Ravel, but it's a nice piece, yeah. So, you know, listening to those, those first read-throughs, rehearsals, um, were you thinking, uh-oh, I gotta fix this? Or, or did you, was it, was it ready when you got there? Those were pretty ready. Um, yeah, there probably were a couple of tweaks. I definitely am not, um, shy about doing that mm -hmm. right away on a new piece. Um, even if it involves maybe moving past a little section and I'll, I'll have it, if there are two rehearsals, for instance, mm -hmm. I'm gonna tweak that for tomorrow. Yeah. My goal is not to have much of that, but some of the more subtle things, for instance, I might take, for instance, in brass, I might change a mute idea mm -hmm. to open or closed or something. Mm -hmm. Just, I hear it and I go, no, no, what was I thinking? Yeah. Or it's not what I'm looking for kind yeah. of thing. Once in a while, I've written a little thing that was kind of awkward on an instrument because I don't really play other instruments. I try to be really pedagogically informed about other instruments. Mm -hmm. And I'll ask questions. I'll, I'll take a little teeny bit of music, eight bars, and show it to a violinist or a clarinet player. Mm -hmm. And when I'm playing recording sessions, a lot of times on the breaks, I'm talking to another instrumentalist about something they just played. Or was that difficult? Or can you play a couple of low flute things for me so I can hear that right. sound? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, once in a while, you have to make a quick change because it's just too awkward. And it's, it's kind of rare that happens, actually, because right. when you're dealing with really strong players, it, uh, <clears throat> they pull it off, you know. Yeah. We've had that, right, a million times as trumpet players. Absolutely. Some composer guy comes in with, <laughs> oh, it's good on the computer. And then we have to play it. Some maybe, uh, maybe a, a video game composer guy. Mm -hmm. We figure out how to play it. And they say thank you and love it, but they don't know that it really, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> they right. don't know way off. <laughs> right. Well, and let's hope they don't look at our parts and see what we, we've penciled in <laughs> around those places, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, with, with students, high school and college, uh, though, um, sometimes you have to be a little careful that it's, it's not your fault. <laughs> in other words, if something you wrote is a little bit sketchy, it's probably, it may not be your fault. Mm -hmm. Not that they just can't play the notes, but sometimes the balances are way off. And that can really throw me. Uh, I mean, I've learned a lot, not let it throw me. The first read through of something, yeah. 
even if you've written careful dynamics, people are reading and they didn't pay attention between a mezzo piano and piano. They're just reading and trying to get through this, mm -hmm. uh, this strange new music or, or this new piece. <laughs> Maybe they didn't practice it and they should have, you know. Right. And when the there's a point, it's like making a great fish stew or something. There's a point where the, the okay becomes, ah, there it is. Mm -hmm. Just that last bit of spice and it blossomed, you know. Right. And just the right balances and, and, the, and of the instruments um, as notated, but sometimes you have orchestras that are string light or, or brass heavy mm -hmm. orchestration because that's who live in town, you know, or who are higher or what their budget is. Mm -hmm. And you have to make those adjustments and then it can sparkle after that. Yeah. So keep that in mind. So Rex Richardson. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, you know, a brave enough soul to, to take pieces like the three world winds. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think Rex is, is great and yeah. we've, become, we've become friends. Uh, what do you think about, uh, and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but what do you think about other people taking your pieces and, you know, I mean, Rex is, he's made that piece his own. I mean, I've heard you play that live. It is his own. He, and, to, he commissioned it. But I mean, but what I'm saying is I've heard you both play it and you both yeah. play it in your, in your own style. You both own yeah. that piece beautifully. Um, yeah. So I guess I kind of answered my own, my own question is what do you think of, of that though? Yeah, yeah. Rex is great. We've, we've done some duo concerts, actually an orchestra in, in uh, Croatia and, and uh, a couple other things together mm -hmm. that were really fun. Um, <clears throat> and I'm a fan of his too. He commissioned the piece and really often, I've written also for Vince DiMartino a couple of times and I will suggest um, what works well in terms of the solo part, mm -hmm. meaning articulations and such. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases though, I'll, um, where it's not specific. Well, let me say, I'll tell them where I think it really should be this way as far as phrasing and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I'll say on another part, or even for mo the whole piece, feel free to change articulations and make it work for you mm -hmm. and interpret it. I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, especially the last movement of Three World Winds, we play it pretty differently. It makes me wonder, you know, like the Haydn Concerto. Yeah. Sometimes you can, you can find a, a trumpet score that is completely free of any markings. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I mean, you try to be classically informed with how you're going to perform that, but there's still that freedom for dynamics and articulation, you know, whether it's slur two, tongue two, that sort of thing. And I wonder if Haydn would have uh, appreciated, <laughs> you know, what we do now, uh, the liberties that we take, um, like you're, like you're saying, that. yeah, sorry, like you're saying to Vinny, you know, play it as you, as you feel it, you know, articulate it as, as you see. I'm not enough of an anthropologist to have actually studied or seen the original score. Um, I don't know what's on it. I should. And that would tell us something. The other factor is his personality. And was, was he a Mozart in the terms of every note I put down is perfect the way it is, don't change it. Right. <laughs> um, or if he was a guy like, I don't know, this is this E-flat bugle thing you're playing. Is really a piece of crap. Do the best you can, you know? Um, and then a lot of the reasons we don't, I have a quick anecdote too, but a lot of the reasons we don't see the same music in our collections is because of publications at the time, to, in order to have a copyright on the piece, mm -hmm. 
um, you had you couldn't do the exact same thing as another person, even if it's public domain. Mm. There were some rules about like when I recorded some Arbin pieces for a publisher called Dahask, um, eight of the characteristic, what do you call them? not the characteristic says, but the souls in the back right. of the book right. on cornet and piano. Um, we they rewrote all the cadenzas or they couldn't put it out. It was, yeah. it was they're pretty nice and everything, but anyway. So back to uh, back to the Haydn. Um, the 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 key the 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 um, the best information we have is I think is is other music about style and about articulation. Mm-hmm. And I used to like to really play it legato and kind of romantic, and it it kind of works. It's beautiful that way, but it's not really the correct style. So I've changed it up a little bit in terms of um, matching what the strings do. And so that was my anecdote. Is I, I was here in Seattle and. Adolf Herseth was here getting a golden baton award of some kind. Mm. And it was, it was good, but it was the strangest thing. We had a little sort of organizational rehearsal for the presentation. Mm-hmm. I was there. I don't remember even why I was part of a panel or something to talk about him a little bit. And, um, but it was, he, he was being honored by the orchestra and the, and the orchestra society, which he was cool. He was very mellow, but they took a lunch break and he's just sitting there, nowhere to go. He doesn't know Seattle. He's in the concert hall. I look over and what the hell? So I hung out with him for the whole lunch break, you know, and he was pretty soft-spoken, very friendly and everything. I mean, he could be rough too. Like Mm -hmm. he didn't like his second trumpet player's last performance. He'd let him know that sort of thing. John Hagstrom can do an hour on that if you want. Yeah, right. Um, So I started asking him questions and I was scuffling a little bit because not scuffling, but I was trying to think of good questions in Reiner years and all that Mm -hmm. stuff really fascinating to me here's the iconic orchestra trumpet one of them of all history right, right, right. next to the guy and um one of the questions i asked was what to do in the Haydn trumpet concerto with the f- the eighth notes after the first three notes dum 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 mm-hmm. articulation wise and he's fairly he was fairly blunt you know and so i don't know if you can see me but he kind of went <laughs> obviously you know, one of those workers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said, in every Haydn symphony, the strings go, bum, 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 bum. So you do the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, it's, it's, it's not thinking like a trumpet player, right? Starting to really think about uh, what we're it's surrounded with. Historical context and all, yeah. Yeah, yeah. On the, um, other, on the other hand, if you're playing an E-flat trumpet or B-flat trumpet, which wasn't invented then, or you're playing a piccolo trumpet on a Baroque piece, a contemporary piccolo trumpet and not the original, um, 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 whatever, whatever you call those ones, Baroque trumpets. Mm-hmm. Um, we're already breaking the rules. Right. Just by picking the horn up. So in my world, there's leeway there. I like to hear what people do with the Haydn. You know, Jerry Schwartz's version made it, to me, made it sound like Herbert L. Clark. Mm-hmm. All the embellishments. Beautiful, but not my favorite style. Right. And that's kind of an extreme. It popped into my head as a more interesting example mm-hmm. instead of a simple, straightforward one. Well, you know, I think that comes down to uh, people I've studied with have always said, whatever you do, be compelling, right? I mean, if in your performance, in your choice of style, if you can be compelling, even if it's not period perfect, if you can be compelling and convince me and, and not make me think about anything, just enjoy it, then that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it all, everything. Right. 
uh, <clears throat> people who listen to you are not trumpet players, the greater majority. People who come to the concerts, not just our <laughs> concerts, the concerts in general, used right. to come to the concerts, yeah. are not musicians. Yeah. They know, I, I talk about this in my master class or clinic, I mean, they know a couple of things. One of them is that I waste my time. You know, I could be home watching the game or having dinner or, you know, I worked hard all day. Did I waste my time coming here? Mm -hmm. Not to mention the expense of some of these things. Mm -hmm. And secondly, second of all, did I feel anything? Mm -hmm. They just want to feel something right here and take home that energy. And that's, if we deliver that, if a trumpet player makes a mistake that's kind of big in a, in a recital, if you dwell on that, you not only will go downhill, your audience gets really nervous or I'm not nervous, antsy. Mm -hmm. They look at their program, they shift in their seat, they look mm -hmm. down, they want to get out of there. But if you kind of smile and in your through your eyes go like, oh well, and compel from that moment yeah. forward, you can win them over. Yeah. You can you can worry about or complain about or deal with your little mistake later. You say uh majority of our audience is not trumpet players, unless you're at an ITG conference. <laughs> uh, but then, now, the, then the next thing you said, this goes back to Vince. Uh, this was uh, Grand Rapids, I think, 2012 or something like that, ITG. And, you know, however many hundreds of trumpet players in here. And it was uh, one of those performances where, uh, you know, it was a string of players came out. Well, Vinny came out and did this beautiful little cornet thing, and he missed a note. And he just went, eh, right in front of everybody, <laughs> eh, and went right on. And you know what? Nobody cared. I mean, it was, to me, I mean, that stuck in my mind, obviously, yeah. uh, you know, for a reason. I mean, that's, wouldn't it be great as a performer to have that freedom, you know, on stage to, because, I, you know, I would imagine stuff happens to everybody. I, I don't know about you. Oh, uh, oh gosh, are you kidding me? Absolutely. You should... Are you, when you, if you get a chance, or if I have a chance to play another recital someday, watch my wife's eyes. She'll be playing along and she'll roll over. You know, she's saying he made a mistake in the same spot again. You shouldn't have written it so difficult then, right? Yeah, well, that's, one, that's the easy stuff. Yeah. Because just making a note on the drum, it's not that easy. Yeah. Really, you know, tone production is, is um, such a consistent challenge every single day, getting a note going, getting it smooth and nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, other instrumentalists don't have to deal with it to the extent we do. Right. And so they're already on to the next step of creating music. That's why I think a lot of trembleers get stuck in routines and practicing only exercises. And that psychology of like, I got to do it a thousand times and then a thousand and one times, you know, right. or I won't be good enough. But. You know, um, my 10-year-old uh, is in his third year of Suzuki violin, ah. and I've been taking him to lessons, and I coach him each day. I, I do the daily practice with him, and uh, I have learned so much about music by just watching violin string technique. I wouldn't say just violin, but string technique, yeah. and it's changed the way I've thought about playing trumpet Great. because of the phrasing that you have to do, and you know, and, and being able to visualize the bow arm and parallel that with the breath. Totally. And, you know, you know it changes everything, uh, not just as a player, but me as a teacher. You know, now mm -hmm. I find that's easier to relate uh, an idea to a student. 
if they can also visualize. Fabulous. That. Yeah, my wife is I'm wife. My daughter is a violinist also. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that's happening, which is. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> you you just beeped that. yourself. You must have. Did you swear? Is that what that, uh, you know? No, not even in my mind. <laughs> um, another thing that happen, can happen in, in our lives, because as, as the years of playing go by, and not very many years, we have these habits and default settings that are really hard to change or adjust. Um, it becomes obvious if you teach people that you'll have a lesson where you, you help someone grow in the 55 minutes to an hour, and they really, really sound a large percentage better than they did when they came in. Okay, they warmed up and settled, but beyond that, better than you've ever heard them. And they come back the next lesson or next week, exactly like the old way. Mm. I had, have had residencies that went on for, well, here at the University of Washington for a while, went on for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I had students that were talented and I just, it's, Vince could get them by somehow, but we even had to talk about, look, I've done all I can do. I've thought of everything I can think of. You have to make the choice. Do you want to sound as good as you can sound or just in the middle of me? But what I was going to say about the string um, bowing and the concept of another instrument is it goes through the brain a different way. Mm. The synaptic deal is different than what we've set as, a, as our default process when we practice. So if you're visualizing breathing in and blowing a note as a violin bow, whoosh, a good violin bow, mm -hmm. you're thinking a different way. Yeah. And what a simple way to get better. Right. <laughs> and so if teachers or colleagues or, or webcasts like this project an idea that you can try and run with, the simplest idea can help you launch into the next level. Understanding that on our instrument, the fundamental air movement is the foundation of everything. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying blow hard, nope. I'm saying relaxed, steady, smooth mm -hmm. against the resistance of your gear not overblowing. And then when you underblow, you know what happens, you're, sure. at, you're out of tune and then up fuzzy and then gone, mm -hmm. which it's good to experiment with that. So you know what it feels like. Mm -hmm. Play notes that are just before the sound is good. Mm -hmm. You get a feel for what all that is. But before I get off into the weeds, then those parallels, <laughs> are, <laughs> those parallels are really uh, helpful and can be very simple and, and something can click. And then I'll throw it out there. If you have that fundamental going, and the ability to project and gently but insistently, that's one of Vince's words, mm -hmm. insistently push the air through the horn with relaxed demeanor, mm -hmm. your range, endurance, technique all can grow quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I watch you on videos. I watch Sergey mm -hmm. uh, and two of, you know, if you're the most efficient players out there, you know, and I know you're working hard, but in a very efficient, efficient manner. Um, and I try to get my students not only to listen to, uh, well, Hokan is another one, uh, and especially lately with the Charlier things. That wow, isn't that something? Yes, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, you know, is not just to, to listen, but to watch and to see the posture and the ease. Mm, it's like mm. you don't have to, uh, you know, to swing a sledgehammer at every note, right? Right. It's, right. And so it's. I've never been able to uh, play the trumpet as an athletic event. If I try to do that, I, I get tired and mm -hmm. 
non-responsive if I overblow and try to keep up with the super high loud stuff. You know, I have decent range, but compared to the guys who are kind of uh, athletic, Olympic-style double high C and above for right. the sake of that, that's a physical phenomenon I don't understand either, how that's possible. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing. Um, but we have to do what we can do as individuals. We can't assume by any means that we could all play the same. Mm -hmm. So in the process of learning all this stuff, let yourself be, it sounds so cliched now, but be you. You let your heart go through, use your musicality. Mm -hmm. And if you do look at some of the most successful musicians in terms of reaching the public in history, both in jazz and classical, they're all, they may not be the best players, mm -hmm. but they touch something musical. Even in the pop world, you know, the most success, successful popular instrumentalists found something with an emotional or a, whatever the happiness gene mm -hmm. is that clicks in people's brains. Mm -hmm. And they may not have and weren't the best instrumentalists, perhaps, but they really reached a lot of people. Yeah. Um, my wife and I were uh, painting our garage the other day, and she had a playlist going on. You know, we're listening to music, and uh, Johnny Cash came on. Oh, Right. I grew up listening to oh huge variety of music and, and yeah. country western and, and Johnny Cash uh, included Merle Haggard, you know, I don't know if those names mean anything, yeah, but yeah. um you know the I'll song finished. Don't forget. Okay, well there you go. Okay. <laughs> uh uh so the song finished and I said to Jenny, I said, Do you think there'll ever be a singer like that again? Because you think about how rough how untrained that voice was, but the ability to connect. Yeah. I and mean, he had exactly what you're talking about, that ability to connect. And man, you know, you listen to, uh, I think, you know, still in that genre, Willie Nelson's another one of those who's, mm -hmm. it ain't the prettiest thing you've ever heard, no. but there's something there yeah. that just, uh, that it hooks you, right? It gets they don't you. have to be highly produced either. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, you know, yeah, there's no, uh, uh, what do they call it, intonation, whatever that thing they use these Auto -tune, days, yeah. auto-tune. Yeah, the so, real thing. Yeah. It can be subtle, but they like it when it's not. Yeah, yeah well, that, that's going to continue to happen in terms of some people rising up in, in classical jazz and, um, and pop country, all those different settings, people will find a way through, you know, all of our communication mm -hmm. uh, possibilities now to be successful on a global scale or in a very large scale. It's tricky and it's great. Um, but the public in general and the, the industry in general is very, very dumbing down. You know, the, the whole auto tune, you don't have to sing well at all besides the melodies are two notes or three notes. Yeah. And there's just a really good beat and a lot of production colors and stuff like that. And then the, the whole talking over stuff thing. Um, is, it's ubiquitous and it reaches the very primitive rhythmic kind of core of, of many people's beings. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to understand anything. They can do the complaining for you. They can swear at people for you. All that is so strong and such a huge, I mean, look at how rich these people are too. Um, it's so pervasive that we're not going to get rid of that. It might morph into something else. Mm -hmm. But I, I mourn the loss of the organic people, music that comes up in all these genres. Mm -hmm. But my wife always says to me, 
well, someone's going to make it because people, clever people with, or, or people who are great artists with clever people around them find ways mm-hmm. to, be, to be heard. Well, you know, I think, and I agree uh, with what you're saying. I listen to, I'm a huge fan of Led Zeppelin. Oh, and, wow. and the poetry, right? I mean, just take the lyrics themselves. Mm-hmm. Nobody even writes like that anymore. Forget the, the melody itself, but, you know, just wow. the, so, and I was going to say too, the way you were describing things, I was thinking it's, today's music is that it's a drive-through, right? It's fast food. It's, yeah, you know, it's there and it's gone, right? Uh, and it's background a lot of the time. Or it's, yeah. it, you know, even if you have it blasting in, in your car so that, the you know, <laughs> that thing where the car next to you shakes, it's still background. It's still background. It's not really what you're, you're not sitting there absorbing some kind of energy from it that's uh, healthy, particularly healthy. Oh, well. Yeah, Yeah. so um, I want to- People just turned off their computers just now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I want to wrap up and uh, I know you've got uh, another appointment here. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you, uh, Alan, for uh, joining me. Thank you for everything you've shared. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody, for listening to today's interview. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll come back next week for another great interview. Just a reminder that you can help support this podcast by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash studio h-f-l. You can become a subscriber for as little as $3 a month or sponsor for as much as $20 to $50 a month. I'd like to thank again the sponsors for this podcast, Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and Pickett Blackburn, all three companies providing excellence in their products and customer service. Be sure to check them out at messinacovers.net, the Eastman Music Company at eastmanwins.com, and Pickett Blackburn at picketblackburn.com. Thanks again. Now, go practice.